Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and thanks for tuning in for another episode of the podcast. And in this time, I'm speaking with David Whitkin once again. Many of you will recognize David. We did an episode with him uh, back in September 2018, where he talked more broadly about the Beryl Merger Arbitrage Fund and the type of idiosyncratic risk or uncorrelated risk that attracts many investors. I was speaking to David a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about how he has pivoted the strategy into investing in SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies. This is an area of the market that's attracted a lot of attention in recent months, and many people pointing out that the emergence of and popularity of SPACs is an indicator that we're in fact nearing the end of this cycle. With that in mind, I thought it would be good to speak to David and understand exactly how he's investing in them. And since pivoting to the strategy being up 40% roughly is an indicator that there's some gains to be made in that area. But I was very interested to understand the risks involved in doing so. I think you'll find it quite enlightening. I certainly did. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed to be, nor is it specific advice. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Please also remember to keep your feed, feedback coming through. Of course, remember to rate and share uh, and, and like on various platforms that you may be listening on. I really appreciate it. Remember to keep emailing me your suggestions. They're really helpful. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thank you and enjoy the episode. David Whitkin, welcome back to Inside the Road. Good to be here, David. How are you going? Uh, joining us from uh, Los Angeles. How are you keeping uh, through these different times? Uh, we're managing. Uh, I've been healthy. My family's been healthy, and the, the whole team is, is doing well. We we have our trainer working from home, um, but the rest of us are now socially, properly socially distancing in the office. So we're we're good, and it seems like. Um, the U.S. and L.A. in particular has turned the corner, so it should be a good spring and summer. And if I if I'm right, I think um, you know we're recording this at the end of March, but I think it's only recently that uh, kids have gone back to school in California. That's right. My six-year-old went back three weeks ago. My 11-year-old went back uh, last week, so they'll get a good two months of uh, in-person schooling, which uh, is, is not only good for them and makes me happy, but takes a lot of burden off my wife, who yeah. is grappling with uh, the ins and outs of, of Zoom education, as I'm sure many parents are. Yeah, I think uh, what I've seen, there's a lot more um, positive feelings to be towards educators and the tasks they've done. You know, I think I've seen and heard anecdotally a lot of... Uh, people uh, at, at parent-teacher interviews being much, showing much more gratitude, which is great, but I'm glad to hear you're all well. Um, David, I thought it would be good for our listeners to check back in with you after we recently caught up. Um, obviously, we recorded an episode of the podcast earlier in the series where we talked about your Beryl uh, merger arbitrage strategy um, that you've been managed for many of uh my clients for a time now where you're taking leverage positions into corporate activity positions where there's merger, merger arbitrage activity. Um, 
but you flagged that you there was somewhat of a pivot and a change uh, recently where you've been investing in special purpose acquisition companies um, or SPACs as they're known, which have become the, the, the flavour of, of the market. Um, I think if you could perhaps talk to our listeners a little bit about that, that'd be really helpful. And if we could start with really, um, if you could give an outline to our listener what, what a SPAC is and why they've become popular at the moment. Sure. Um, and, and I'll tell you why I made the pivot. So SPACs have been around for 30 years. It, it's not a new structure. Um, ARBs, have, ARBs like me have always uh, done some SPAC investing. And the reason we do is it's very low downside, but potentially high upside. So if you're interested in capital preservation, with the potential to earn outsized returns when things go right. Um, SPACs are, are a very interesting investment. Now, I made the pivot six months ago because SPACs started demonstrating a lot more upside than they had previously, but the SPAC structure is such, and, and I will explain it, that if you get in at the right price, there is no downside. Uh, so it's a very interesting security. Um, I'm not surprised that it's caught on in the market. Like there, there is a lot of exuberance right now and we can get into all of that. Um, but I'll, I'll explain what a SPAC is. So SPACs are publicly traded securities. And what I'll first talk about is that the basic SPAC structure is called a unit. And a SPAC unit, consists of a share of common stock plus a fraction of a warrant. A SPAC is issued by anyone, usually just let's call it a, a uh, retired CEO who has a, a uh, extensive network in business, or it's issued by a private equity firm or a VC firm. In order to take the cash they raise and go out and find a private company to inject that cash into in exchange for a portion of, of that private company. And in the process, give that private company a public listing. So a SPAC, you know, call it David Wicken Acquisition Corp would be ticker DWAC. I would raise, I would, I would issue units for $10 per unit and investors would pay me $10 and I'd give them a share of stock that has just $10 in a bank account. But in order to entice them to give me the $10, what I would do is, is issue them a fraction of a warrant. So zero, a standard term is 0 0.5 warrants, half, half of a warrant with a strike price of $11.50. So if I go out and find a company, a uh, private company that's interesting, um, makes money, captures the imagination or captures the attention of, of, of public investors and the stock goes to 15, then the intrinsic value of the warrant is, becomes $3.50. Um, so that, you know, the warrant portion is, is where the upside can typically come in. 
um, so what's what started happening in the middle or in early 2020 was the um, SPAC business combinations began to be announced. And instead of going from $10 to $10.50 or $10 to $10.20, they started going to $15.20, Electric vehicles were, became a popular target of SPACs and the market, you know, was very exuberant about finding the next Tesla. Um, so that, that was one reason that kind of the SPAC phenomenon caught on, but this, the, the great thing about SPACs is you give you as a, as a unit holder, um, if I pay $10 per unit and the SPAC goes out and announces a deal that I don't like, I can get my $10 back. Like there's a contractual right that when the time comes to vote on the business combination. And, and David, is that per investor, per shareholder, or is that as a whole group, i.e. majority rules, and if the majority of shareholders vote for the transaction, you automatically get swapped over, or is that per shareholder? It's per shareholder. So it doesn't matter if everyone else loves the deal and I hate it, I can get my money back. Um, so the key, whether SPACs are frothy or not frothy, is to make sure you get in as close to $10 or preferably under $10 as possible. Because um, the only way that the structure goes wrong for someone like me who's investing in the common shares or the units is to buy over 10 have the SPAC announce a bad business combination, and then you lose money, you know, down to $10. So is that a... Yeah, so I think, you know, this sort of concept, if I've got it right, of it's, it's a listed company, a bit like a, um, a shell company we would have had here in Australia, which people would do a backdoor listing via, except the fact that, you're saying you've actually got the option not to participate in the acquisition going forward. Um, I, I guess, you know, people get a little concerned and concerned that this is late stage in a very hot equity market when they sort of see, you know, I'm reminded of Robert Frost's uh, poem or statement, you know, two roads diverge in a yellow wood and I took the one less traveled and that made all the difference. If you've got a company that has the path that can go down to an IPO, which would seem to be a little bit more rigorous, might take six months where they can go via a SPAC and do it in two months, for instance, um, you know, it just is going down the SPAC route just a quicker, easier, cheaper route for them, which might give them some assurity on how much they raise giving a listing. But, you know, it, often in life, the easier ways aren't the best ways. Um, what are your thoughts around why people are, why companies are choosing that route um, rather than going a traditional IPO? Yeah, there are three reasons, um, four, four reasons why they would. Speed, as you mentioned, it takes four to six months 
to, to close a SPAC business combination versus six to 12 months for an IPO. So speed, certainty of value. So if you are um, Airbnb and you're, you're doing an IPO, you don't know the valuation of your company until, you know, after a three month roadshow until the day before you price. And a lot of times investment banks are underpricing the IPOs and Airbnb could have raised twice the amount of money that it could have. And they're yeah. underpricing that because they're wanting their clients or the clients of the advisors and people who are taking it to have a good experience and for it to trade up. They, they meaning the underwriters. Yeah. Yes. The company doesn't necessarily want that. The underwriters want to please Fidelity or the other clients. Yes. Um, so with a SPAC, the SPAC is able to negotiate the value. I'm sorry, the private company is able to negotiate the value that the SPAC is going to bring it public at. So if I have my own David Witkin Acquisition Corp and I find an interesting uh, widget company to bring public, I'll try to get them at $1 billion. They'll ask for three and we'll negotiate a value. We'll negotiate as if it's a private deal, right? And then, and then only then will I announce the deal to the market um, for the market to judge whether that's a fair value. So you get the certainty of valuation. Um, the third thing is sponsorship. Good SPACs bring a level of experience just both in business and in public markets that can oftentimes be very helpful to the private company as it becomes a public company. Usually the SPAC sponsor will, will join the board, um, will act as kind of an ambassador for the, for the company you know, as they transition to being public. And then the, the, the last thing is important is in SPACs, you are allowed to issue forward projections. Whereas in an IPO process, the company is not allowed to issue forward projections. So what we're finding with SPACs is it's earlier stage companies that are choosing to come public via SPAC because their revenues may not necessarily be, be significant in 2020 or 2021. However, they claim, and some are claiming validly and some are claiming invalidly, that they're going to have a significant revenue ramp for one reason or another by 2023, 2024. And being able to tell that to investors um, is important to them to get the valuation that they want. So those are the reasons, those are the advantages of SPACs versus IPOs. Um, but I wanna make the point, it's fine to have the discussion of about SPACs, uh, whether it's a bubble or not a bubble. Um, but if we step back, look, there are 500 SPACs now. People are calling it a bubble. There are 10,000 stocks now. People are not calling stocks a bubble. So I think if for anyone who's considering investing in the SPAC 
space, just make sure you're partnering with someone who knows the space well. Because I'm ignoring 80% of the specs out there because I feel that the sponsors are low quality. And, and so they will bounce, the prices will bounce up and down. Many of them will, will go, the two, the uh, SPACs have two years to find a deal. Many of them won't be able to find a deal that investors will approve within two years. However, the good sponsors will find deals. They've proven that they have the network to do so and that there are enough good private companies that the public market will embrace. And so if I can get them below 10, which I am, my choice is to either get 10 at the end of the day if I don't like the deal or get above 10 if the market happens to like what they bring public. And, and David, are you able to hedge any part of that um, exposure to the reception you know, by the market for the acquisition that's announced? There are vehicles that that offer the ability to hedge. There, there are ETFs, SPAC ETFs that one can short. There are puts and calls on certain SPACs. So the opportunity is there for someone that wants to hedge. I don't hedge. The way I control risk is by just making sure that my entry price is low enough. And therefore the risk is, as you articulated before, I believe, that you, you, you analyze the transaction and the acquisition is going to be positively received by the market and trade up, whereas in fact the opposite occurs and the market doesn't like it or something happens between that period uh, where, where you're exposed and, and it trades down. Is that correct? Yeah, so let, let, let's, let's take two periods of time. Um, Well, let's, let's take three periods of time. Last um, October, there was a sell-off in the SPAC market. And the average price in my portfolio of pre-deal SPACs was $9.80. Some of the SPACs that were in the portfolio at the time announced deals. Some have still not announced their deals. But of the ones that announced their deals, when it was well received, the stock would go to 15, 18. So certainly, of course, we made a lot of money there. And, and typically what I do is I sell uh, because I'm not in the business of you know, speculating on growth companies per se. I'll leave that to someone else. I'll just you know, monetize the gains and, and, and move on. The, there were deals announced that weren't so great and they traded up from 980 to 985 because what what they what that becomes then is just a yield play because when when the time comes to vote on that bad deal let's say three months hence so a bad deal announced in october would get voted on in january um, there's an arbitrage there because I, I, 
you know, ARBs, including me, can buy at 980 and then just redeem for their $10. So that's why I say like when, when you're in a period of time when SPACs writ large are trading below 10, and we're in that time right now, by the way, then they can announce a, a terrible deal, but you still make money. You just make a little bit um, as opposed to, you know, making This seems unbelievable that this market anomaly exists, that you're able to cash back to $10. It comes with that option. I, I would have thought all economic and pricing theory would say that, you know, it's going to trade back to that strike price of $10 if you can redeem at $10. Why is it not trading back to that value? Um, because SPACs historically have been viewed as fixed income vehicles, kind of like convertible bonds. And, and the SPAC shareholder base is dominated by fixed income type players. So if something shot from 980 right up to $10, there's no, kind, there's no yield anymore. And then at that point, when you're when you have a SPAC that's announced a deal at ten, and it, or that's announced the deal, and it's trading at ten dollars, then you get into the realm of just it's it's optionality. Maybe the stock will go up beyond ten, um, but most of the yield players will get out when the yield is too small for them. So that that's why. That's, that is why the anomaly exists, and that's, that's why it's such an interesting asset class to exploit. But I, I told you, I, I, wanted, I wanted to talk about the time frame, different periods of time when SPACs are more risky versus less risky. Back in October, they were not very risky. In February, the average pre-deal SPAC was trading at $11.50. Because, you know, you know, there, there was a mania uh, because, you know, well-received SPAC acquisitions like DraftKings, which is trading at 70, um, Skills, which was a gaming company trading at 30, numerous electric vehicle companies, some of which are really good, some of which aren't so good, were trading between 15 and 30. Virgin Galactic. Virgin Galactic at 30, exactly. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't irrational to think, sure, I'll pay $11.50 for a shot at something that could go to 30, where the downside is 10. So th there was a lot of exuberance. I wouldn't call it a bubble. But if you own a portfolio of SPACs, pre-deal SPACs at $11.50, and some bad deals start coming in, there is 15% downside to $10. And in March, in late February, uh, you know, we had, we had monetized a lot of our gains, but we still own some SPACs um, you know, that were over 10. There was a sell-off. There were deals announced in SPACs that we owned where the deals were bad um, and we lost money. And that there was, uh, you know, that was a risky period. And I can't, you know, 
it, it's there's some volatility involved. Um, what has what has happened in March is we've now retraced to where the average SPAC pre-deal SPAC is at nine seventy. Okay, and so you're back to where you started. Well, having monetized a lot of our gains, so we're still we're still up quite a bit for the year, fortunately, um, and we're now rebuilding a, our portfolio of, of our favorite names, uh, basically at nine seventy. And how so, many positions would you have typically in in spacs, or how many different spacs would be in the portfolio at any one time? Uh, anywhere from a hundred to 200, it's, it's fairly diversified. When we had 200 SPACs, um, the thesis was, I wanna catch every deal because the market likes every deal. Mm -hmm. Now, um, there are so many SPACs out there that the thesis is, I, I wanna be in the SPACs of the sponsors who I think have the highest probability of bringing a good deal. And if I can get those sponsors at a good price and 970, 980, I certainly think is a good price. And by the way, we have warrants in, in all of these facts as well. Um, I, we put ourselves in a great position to win. And, and, and the sponsors are the people who have started the SPAC or behind the SPAC. And how do you analyze and determine whether they are a good sponsor or a poor sponsor? Uh, the, First, first litmus test is have they done SPAC deals before and where are those deals trading? You want someone who has demonstrated success in SPACs before, that's point one. Point two would be uh, maybe they haven't done a SPAC deal before, but they've done great M&A deals in their career as a CEO or private equity um, investor. That, that would be number two. David, there was a, a paper at the, at the end of last year, uh, published by the Harvard Law School Forum, which was titled A Sobering Look at SPACs. And they found that typically SPACs tend to trade off uh, in a third or more of cases post-merger because of embedded dilution. Can you talk to what, what the issues there they're, they're honing in on? Yes. Um, and first of all, I want to assure your listeners that we are not investing at that stage. Like when the business combination is completed, that's when the dilution comes in and it is not an attractive place to be in the SPAC market. You can, you can catch a DraftKings and make money if, if you're lucky or, or good, but most of the time when, when the SPAC deal closes, you're exactly right, that stock goes down. So where, where we want to be is at at ten dollars with the ability to get our ten dollars back because once the deal closes you can't get your ten dollars back um the dilution comes in because one of the unique quirks of the SPAC structure is that if the business combination deal closes successfully the SPAC sponsor gets 20% of the SPAC's shares. So an average deal is a $200 million SPAC taking 
public a $2 billion company, meaning the SPAC ends up with 10% ownership of the newly public company and the, the, the old private company shareholders end up with 90% of the, of the new public company shares. Um, but the dilution comes in because those sponsor shares now kick in upon the effectiveness of, of the business combination. And a lot of times if you're, you know, people that aren't paying attention, whether that's retail investors or, or otherwise, don't understand that dilution. Um, and that's, that's a very real uh, factor in the SPAC market. But it's one that certainly the private company knows about. So when they negotiate the valuation, it incorporates the dilution. So one has to know if you're going to go out and invest in post deal SPACs, you need to know exactly you know, what the pro forma share count is. Because um, if you don't, you're probably going to be overpaying. And David, um, what since you've pivoted to this strategy about six months ago, how's performance been in the fund? Uh, looking at our tear sheet, since the pivot, we probably made 40% in that, in that six months. That's a very good, healthy uh, return in anyone's language. And, and what is your outlook presently for the next sort of six months to a year? I'm not going to put numbers on it uh, because what I can't control is where does the stock go when a business combination is announced? Mm -hmm. So the outlook is good, <laughs> is what I'd say. And just uh, your, your listeners should know about us. Look, I'm, I'm willing to accept some, some volatility uh, and, and all, all of your clients you know, have access to our track record. However, what, what ARBs like is sure things. And when you get into pre-deal SPACs below 10, that's, it's like a treasury bond or treasury bill. It's a sure thing with some upside. So we'll, 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 see, we'll see what the upside brings the, the, the remainder of 2021. Dave, that seems to me to be the key, the key here in that you know, there are a lot of you know, I, I'm looking at a whole bunch of articles that are the beginning of the end of the SPAC frenzy, all of these type of articles. So it would be easy for an investor um, or a client or, you know, a retail investor, for instance, to think this is a really dangerous bubble-like position. But I think what you've articulated here is that if you are in the pre-acquisition or pre-merger announcement below $10 SPAC market, um, it's pretty fertile hunting ground. Absolutely. You, you yeah. nailed it. Yep. David, is there anything else I haven't asked you or you think would be really pertinent to our listeners at this point uh, before, we, before we wrap up? No. I mean, I, I would just encourage people to take healthy skepticism in articles they see about SPACs, because it, it's certainly a new phenomenon, you know, in the, in the uh, pop culture zeitgeist. 
and the business media is incentivized to call everything a bubble. Some things are bubbles, uh, others aren't. That's really not not my job. But they, your your clients and listeners should know when it comes to SPAC investing, getting in, as you said, getting in below ten is one of the lowest risk investments there can be. Um, so that that was well said. Trudy David, um, thanks for your time once again. It's been uh, really enlightening and fantastic as it always is. Really appreciate your time. Stay safe. You bet. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.